With the Tour de France underway, the Giro d'Italia is just around the corner, and Flowbikes is the place to be. Watch all 21 stages of the Giro live and on demand in the US and Canada. In addition to the live broadcast, viewers will get a behind-the-scenes look at the race with exclusive interviews, expert analysis, rider features, and more. Other upcoming live events include the Tour of Flanders, Amstel Gold Race, Ghent Wavelgum, and so much more. Subscribe today by going to flowbikes.com forward slash velonews. That's flobikes.com forward slash velonews. Velonews has been the American voice of competitive cycling since 1972, and they just launched an all-new premium membership program called Velonews Pass. Members of Velonews Pass get access to premium content on Velonews, discounts from partners like Scratch Labs and Giordana, plus your choice of any of the magazines produced by their parent company, Pocket Outdoor Media, which include Velonews, Triathlete, Ski, Backpacker, Climbing, Yoga Journal, and more. Loyal listeners of Fizzo get 15% off Velonews Pass with the code FIZZO15. Has to be lowercase. That is P-Y-S-O-15, all lowercase. Become a member at velonews.com slash activepass and enter the code FIZZO15, all lowercase, during checkout. That's velonews.com slash activepass and coupon code FIZZO15 to join. The Tour de France, Oakley, Aero Bars, Helmets, clipless pedals, the power meter, the bike computer, and of course, carbon fiber are all innovations attributed in part to the USA's first tour champion, Greg LeMond. But what was life like growing up in the universe that was LeMond? This week, in the shade of La Tour, a Fizzo podcast special. I told my squad we gonna make it out one way or the other. Yeah. Some hoop dreams, but no jumping like I'm at him. My pen is too clean, so I had to stick with rapping. My life is hella deep, dog. You couldn't even fathom. My goals are like Twitter, you can see I'm staying at him. I'm trying to be the goat. Every day I'm chasing ghosts like I'm Danny Phantom. And I can sell a nigga, but I'm really selling G'day and welcome to the second episode of our Tour de France special in the shade of La Tour. My name is Angus Morton. And, of course, as always, I am joined by Bobby J. Bobby, how you doing, mate? Yeah, yeah, not bad, not bad. Just got a lot going on. My wife is gone for this last week. So, on top of the Tour de France starting, I basically have turned into a taxi driver. So, <laughs> it's pretty amazing what one little girl has on during her day with volleyball practice, soccer practice, the games you know, little sleepovers and stuff like that. So I just want to give a shout out to all the mothers out there that normally do this by themselves because, you know, talk about a bubble. I mean, I've barely got out of the house. And if I do get out of the house, it's just sitting in my car waiting, waiting at soccer or volleyball practice or, you know, running to the grocery store and stuff. So I got, I get a little taste of what it's like that what all these wonderful women in the world do for us. And, um, I'm just counting down the hours until she comes home. <laughs> How have you been? Yeah, mate. mate, I've been well. I've been well. It's, uh, you know, it's been a scorcher of a week, obviously, across quite a bit of the USA. And then today in, uh, in Colorado, we've been hit with snow. 
Um, so, you know, by the end of this year, I think there'll be, there'll be quite a, a few extreme things that have gone on that will just be completely forgotten. And uh, I mean, I feel like snow on September 8 is a, uh, is one of those things. But yeah, man, uh, bizarre times here. But aside from that, cannot complain. All is well. All is well. Yeah, growing up in Colorado, I know that the weather can change pretty quickly. And that has me a little bit concerned with not only the Tour de France getting into the mountains, but then the Giro and the Vuelta getting into the mountains even a month after uh, a month from now. So going to be interesting to see how things go. But like the big news of the Tour de France is I think we've all been waiting a little bit with bated breath for the second round of testing, which came on the first rest day yesterday. And it sounds like the Peloton got out pretty unscathed, but ironically, the race director, Christian Prudhomme, tested positive and now has to be quarantined away from the race. So, I mean, it, let, let's be honest, with that many people rolling around and you've seen the size of the crowds on the side of the road, I, I didn't think they would come out of this as well as they did, but I am super stoked that they have because this Tour de France is shaping up to be fantastic, you know. Obviously, since our last podcast, we had a couple more great stages, and you guys all mm. know the the results of those. But um, you know, with stage five, Walt Van Aert winning on top of what he and his team has already done is just phenomenal. I mean, this kid is such a beast. In stage six, we had Alexei Lusenko win. That was really interesting to me because Nelson Paulus, twenty four years mm. old, had a great ride. I don't know if this is the the case, but. Jonathan Vodders, his team director, was in the car behind him, and he kept being interviewed by Christian Vanneveld and Chris Horner on NBC Sports, and he was talking about numbers this and our sports scientists' calculations that. And when I saw Nelson attacking so early, I was just like, man, I wonder, just because he set that number in his head, if he's maybe pushing Nielsen to, to, to go a little bit too hard or too soon, and I mean, mm -hmm. hindsight's twenty twenty. He did, uh, in fact, not blow up, but he attacked too early, and Lusenko went on for the win. But just great seeing seeing an American rider in a in a breakaway. I mean, we got only three of them this year, so every time they get up there, it's great to see. And yeah. you know, stage seven, we had Walt Fernout win again, second stage win. And remember, this was the stage where the crosswinds played havoc on the field where Bora basically just threw it in the gutter to go for the for the green jersey point sprint and then were basically committed to riding a team time trial all the way to the finish. And my big takeaway from that, I mean that takes that takes a lot of cojones to do that sort of move, but Sagan in the sprint he could have put away the green jersey competition right then and there. He could have come away with a like a 50-60 point lead, but he he kind of got caught out of position. I don't think he had the legs because when when Peter Sagan has the legs, he's going forward, not sideways. And he did bump into another rider, and thank goodness that rider didn't crash. Uh, mm. I believe he was from Israel Startup Nation, and he wound up marking hardly any points. So I mean, just when you think, oh, Sagan's got this in the bag, there's no other sprinters up there. You know, something like that happens. Yeah, exactly. I think that was a really interesting stage. There's a bit of a, a, a changing of the guard perhaps this year um, with the green jersey. And I mean, it is an odd Tour de France, right, coming out of, of such an extended period of, of no racing. Um, and, and during that time, Sagan really did keep his head down. Um, and so everyone was sort of looking to see what he could do here. 
interesting. Um, I think, you know, we'll definitely see more of him later on. And uh, and as you said, Bora Hansgrohe are in really good form. But there are a lot of other good bike riders here and uh, and a lot of people really hungry for the win. So another interesting stage. And I think uh, we may have a few more of those coming uh, in, in the next little bit. So it'll be good to see. Yeah, good to see how that green jersey race pans out. And I'm glad I'm glad to say just from a spectator's point of view that uh, it's not sewn up yet. And it is very much wide open and it just adds another element of entertainment uh, coming into the the last sort of week and a half of this race. Yeah, and stage eight, Nans Peters from AD2R wins solo on a, on a very hilly day. I have to admit, I thought that the announcers were making a mistake calling him French because with a name like that, I for sure thought he was Belgian. Um, right. But... You know, our buddy Larry Warbass is on his team and says nothing but good things about this guy. Ex-Hincapie Racing Team member Tom Squeenge was was second, mm-hmm. and Nielsen was up in the front again. I mean, two breakaways in the first, you know, eight stages of the tour. That's impressive, because let me tell you, I did my first tour. I didn't even get to the front of the peloton until like day 10. And I think that day I actually went up during the neutral start and went into the lead position to, to say myself to, to myself that I actually was in the front of the Tour de France because <laughs> I was honestly starting to think I would never see it. So great for him. The the real battle was uh, for the GC guys where Pogachar set a record going up the Parasord. And I have to admit, right. when I was watching this on TV, because of the camera angle, you, I didn't really get the sensation that they were going super fast. But then I saw all these guys getting piped off the back, Richie Port, Adam Yates, and um, then afterwards, we find out that he won up it in, in record time, beating the, the record that was set back in 2003 by Alexander Vernokarov and, and Ivan Mayo. So, you know, what, what, a, what, a, what a, an amazing performance these guys are having. You know, yes, Pogachar did give up some time in the crosswinds, and he just took advantage of this situation that maybe they were going to give him a little bit of a leash, and he, he got 40 seconds back in, in one, one false swoop. This, this kid lit up the Pyrenees, there's no doubt. I mean, he won the next day on stage nine, 21 years old, the youngest stage winner since uh, the one and only Lance Armstrong in, in 1993. This kid is on fire, and you know, coming out of the rest day, there's a few easier stages, breakaway sprint stages. But the next time this thing kicks uphill, um, look out because he's he's got the confidence and to be honest, just just totally fearless. Yeah, he is absolutely in his statements after that stage, you know, with with regards to his compatriot. Yeah, he, he's not afraid. He's not afraid. He said uh, he said when we're racing, uh, when we're racing for the win, we're racing for the win, and 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 he's going to go for it. So it's it's going to be exciting to see. You know, we all watched him last year in the in the Vuelta, just absolutely destroy it uh, in the last in the last week of the of the tour. So it'll be interesting to see if he if he does if he does that sort of thing again and, and just continues to get stronger. But yeah, he's definitely uh, probably ruining the day that he lost that time in the crosswinds, but, you know, he certainly made up for it uh, in the Pyrenees. But the ride of the day was from another young rider, Mark Hershey from Team Sunweb. I mean, so far, this is the the stage of the tour. This kid breaks away from his gr- group that he was in, does 80K solo. You don't expect him to make it up to the top of the last climb, which was the Mari Blanc, which is a SOB, let me tell you. <laughs> and he just masterfully deals with the descent 
It looks like he's going to hold on. 2K to go, he decides to sit up and do the sprint and almost wins the sprint. I couldn't tell you, I, I, I love Pogachar, and my my pick for the overall, Mikel Landa was, was in the group as well. Bernal was in the group. Rolich was in the group. But I don't think there was a single person in the world watching that didn't want Hershey to win that day after everything he had done. So I know that call of sitting up was maybe a little bit controversial, but I think he made the the perfect decision there not only him but as his team director because you never know they could have set up that that other group with Richie Port could have come back to that group of four and they could have played cat and mouse for a little bit because they obviously were riding all the way to the line for every second mm. and um he 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 deserves a win after what he did on stage one and and what he did on stage nine this this kid has has quite the future yeah, absolutely. And I feel like he's been one of those riders who I've had to check the results sheet multiple times this year, um, both at the beginning of the season and now, just to find out who he was because he's always up there and no one seems to mention him. And anyway, he certainly, I don't think, will be forgotten now. He's uh, really stamped his his uh, his his name on, on, on the World Tour racing and on, and on climbing. So it's exciting to see. And yeah, surely he's going to bag a stage uh, before the end of the race. He's, uh, he's in incredible form. But um, what about some... the, these young guns? I mean, <laughs> they're supposed to be scared and intimidated of the Tour de France. You know, Mark Hershey's 22. Uh, Pogachar is 21. Bernal, for, believe it or not, is only 23 years old. Mm. Um, it's it's uh, Nelson, Nielsen Palace. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's a very exciting trend that you can see that much success at, at such a young age. But Finally, today we get a, a guy that's uh, a little bit long in the tooth. Uh, Sam Bennett from Decoinic Quickstep won stage 10 and retakes the green jersey. Nice to see a little bit of competition here, honestly, after Sagan's dominance over the last seven or eight years. Don't count Sagan out yet. I mean, look, look for him to take opportunities going into those breaks on these little lumpy so-called breakaway days and taking some of those mm. sprint, uh, sprint points away. Obviously, he's not going to be there at the end, but you know, there's 20 points for the green jersey available every day, and I'm sure he's looking at his race book, finding out how can we pull another coup like we did the other day. Yeah, exactly. And that finale there was an interesting one, and and a little nerve-wracking. But uh, as you made a note here, right, good to see uh, a clean sprint, um, particularly after you know we've seen a couple of couple of touches in those fast finishes, and then obviously some incidents in the lead up to the to the Tour de France. So it was good to see. A pretty clean, pretty clean straight run to the finish there. Yeah, the Tour de France is is just so unforgiving. You know, you get through the first nine stages, you get through the the testing, everything looks good, and then like today, there's just crashes everywhere, and multiple yeah. guys were taken out of the race. I mean, this there, you got to have your head on a swivel all the time. It's impossible or next to impossible to stay out of all danger. But if it's not crosswinds, it's mountains. If it's not mountains, it's crashes. If it's not crashes, it's COVID. Like it's it's insane the pressure cooker that is the the Tour de France. But here coming up, we have a few breakaway quote unquote breakaway uh, sprint finishes possible on stage 11, 12, and 14. Stage 13 uphill finish is going to be interesting. I don't think it'll be super selective, but you never know. Stage 15 uh, coming up on Sunday with the finish on the ground Colombier is where I believe this race is going to be won and lost because it's right before the second rest day. The The stages, okay, yes, the last week is is pretty tough as well, but I mean, 
this there's some sticky stages in the final week, but I do believe that the the guy that wins the Tour de France is going to be in the yellow jersey, if not winning the stage on stage 15. That's where the the big boys are going to come out. And uh, outside of the Tour de France, the cycling world kicks off, and this is kind of weird to say, but with Torino Adriatico, um, Pascal Ackerman from Bora Hansgrohe wins stage one in front of Gaviria and Magnus Court. So, yeah, strange to see that race going on right now. And and basically, it was a carbon copy uh, on stage two with Ackerman winning again in front of Gavaria and and young Rick Sobel in in third place. And you know, today with our special guest Jeffrey Lamond, here's another kid that grew up on the podium of the Tour de France with with his father Eric. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, worth noting the caliber of the field at uh, at that race: Froome, Thomas, Fuglesang, Nibali, Woods, Craddock. Will Barter, Brent Brookwalter, Larry Warbasse, and uh, yeah, the young young Matteo Jorgensen who rides uh, for Movistar, uh, signing for them. Who so yeah, it's going to be an interesting race, and 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 uh, well, not a distraction from the tour, but certainly a, a backup. If you if, if if you weren't satisfied with just having the Tour de France on, there is some incredible racing going on over at the Tirreno Adriatico. With the Tour de France underway. The Giro d'Italia is just around the corner and Flow Bikes is the place to be during this crazy fall of racing. Watch all 21 stages of the 2020 Giro live and on demand in the US and Canada beginning on October 3. In addition to the live broadcast, viewers will get a behind-the-scenes look at the race with exclusive interviews, expert analysis, rider features and more. And that's not all. Upcoming live events include the Tour of Flanders, Amstel Gold Race, Ghent, Wevelgem, and so much more. Don't miss out on the craziest fall of racing ever. And when you purchase a Flow Bike subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports network of over 25 sports. Don't miss out. Sign up at flowbikes.com slash velonews. That's flobikes.com forward slash velonews. And that brings us to the focus of today's episode. Synonymous with the tour, the story of Greg LeMond is one that is told every July in households and commentary boxes around the world. But what was it like growing up in that world? This week, we sat down with Jeffrey LeMond, son of Greg, and the kid made famous for his appearance alongside his father on the top step of the podium in 1989. We wanted to get an insight into what life is like as the son of a Tour de France champion. Now, at 35, he reflects on the racing, the characters, and the innovation that went on during his father's career, and how his love of inventing has led him back to the cycling world with the development of a new carbon technology, as well as the upcoming relaunch of the fabled Le Monde bicycle brand. G'day, Jeffrey. Uh, we appreciate you coming on our version of a Tour de France show. How are you doing? I'm really good. I'm really happy uh, I was invited on here and I'm excited to chat with you both. Gus, I spoke with you right before the call and uh, I'm always happy to hear an Australian accent. I've been spending a lot of time in Australia the last few years and it's definitely my number one spot. So love the Aussies and and Bobby, I I definitely like watched you race and your household name, my household. So it's, it's nice to connect. 
Well, I tell you, I feel like I've known you for forever because I just have this image in my head of you on the podium with your dad in, in 1989. And I believe that you were like the, the first kid to ever be on the final podium of the Tour de France and sporting a Coors Light pink hat of all things. Like, do you know how cool you were to, to all us other kids out there? Like, oh my God, he's on the podium with his dad. How, how old were you in that photo there? Well, I, I was five at the time, but like my one comment on it is like, it's a double-edged sword, right? Like to peak at five, like to have my cool factor, <laughs> like at five years old, it's, it's something I deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and can you tell me, like, do you have any memories from that? Sure. That. Okay. Yeah. Particular? Yeah. Like, you know, when my dad was in the tour at that time, we were living in Belgium. So our neighbor, my neighbor would watch me. And then like, as the tour was rolling into Paris, like we'd drive down and then kind of set up in the hotel there. And my grandparents would fly in. I think my dad's parents would go do the whole tour, but my mom's parents would fly in. And on that day, it was just exciting to like see my parents again, honestly, and my grandparents because like we lived in Europe and there was no internet and you just kind of didn't connect the way you could now. But so my, my grandpa Dave, my mom's dad kind of like took me on a tour of Paris. Like we went up the Eiffel Tower, we were walking around and we were walking down the Champs-Élysées and one, one distinct memory is like walking past this kind of like tailgate party and there were like giant magnums of champagne with Fignon's face painted on them. And it was like a Fignon victory party, right? Like yeah. a little before he went out on the course. Um, and that was kind of like a distinct memory because I think we walked past that. And then I think my dad basically crossed the finish line and then the results came in and it went from like, you know, just a, a normal day to like literally my grandpa, like throwing me over a barricade. And then a gendarme like rushing me to another barricade and throwing me over. And then like before I knew it, I was like on the podium. So it was just kind of a, but that's kind of how my life has been, honestly, with like growing up with a father of mine, the way he is. Um, it, it's definitely a circus and it has been, but definitely an interesting kind of perspective for me to grow up with. And now like, kind of looking back on it as we're kind of relaunching the Le Mans brand this month, um, sorting through old photos and just kind of having a bunch of this content like trigger memories. It's, it's interesting to have like grown up, you know, with like the stars of a sport, like mm -hmm. as like the people that are in my living room or having dinner with, or like, it was just normal. Like you don't, I didn't have that perspective. I knew like what was going on and it was cool, but, um, you know, like he knows a legend, but he's like, you know, the dude <laughs> in the room or like my dad's old teammate and like just kind of everyone, you know. So and that era in cycling, I think, is pretty special. Just watching those old tours, like we're editing some content and they're just really dramatic and exciting. So it was it was a very like wild experience, I would say, growing up. Oh, you're speaking to the choir there. For me, your dad was it. Like from day one, I remember watching a, I don't know, wide world of sports edition. And there was, um, it was Perry Roubaix 
and there was they were showing the breakaway and there was that little American flag right next to your dad's name. And I'm like, Greg Lamont, Lamont, is that American? And as soon as I found out that he was American, I definitely started watching cycling and then obviously watched him get third, get second, and then eventually uh, win in 1987. But 1989 for me, because I had really gotten involved in cycling and your dad was like it for me. But I remember being... Uh, when when you were getting chucked over the barricades by those gendarmes, I was in Oklahoma. We had just gotten finished with the Olympic Festival down there, and we were in the airport. And Gus, you're too young to remember anything like this, but like in airports back in the day, they had little TV sets, co- quarter-operated TV sets. And I sat there just plugging quarters in because I think it was like every 15 minutes, you know, you had to put another quarter in. And that's how I watched that final time trial in Paris. And that's how I saw those photos of, you know, that footage of you, of your mom, of your dad, uh, of Otto, his his old soigneur. And there I am, like, just, I, I think I had won the Olympic Festival and watching your dad do what he did, which, you know, was supposed to be impossible, right? Like you just mentioned, there was uh, champagne bottles with Fignon's face on there. But that that raw emotion, especially coming from your, your mother, was something that I, I will never forget. And, you know, just the, the excitement and just the overall sense of accomplishment and maybe relief coming from your dad. And it just lit, lit a fire in me that is still burning. So, I mean, it's so cool to have you on the podcast uh, after this so many years. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that it's it's funny. Like, what came to mind right then was like I took an introductory psychology course in college, and the first day of class, the lecturer like basically was going through slides, and then it came to like some point where it was like, and here is an example of like loss and victory and stuff, and it was the eighty nine. Uh, right. And like, I mean, like Finon's like loss was like so dramatic and the win was so dramatic. Like everything about that moment was, you know, like you couldn't have written a better script for an ending to a race like that. So, uh, I think it is like having grown up and, and having the last name and essentially spelling my name very similar to Greg, a lot of people like bring up this memory of theirs and it's like, it's it's visceral for so many people and it's a lot of a lot of stories start with you know hey i saw that and then i bought a bike and now i've been riding my bike for 20 years or 30 years or however long so it's cool and it's it's incredible because it was a comeback you know and you know my dad was basically on his deathbed two years prior and his expectation like he was gonna quit cycling in may of that year like this is what I've been, this is what I've overheard a few times, but um, like he was in the Giro and he called my mom and he was just like, I'm done. Like it's been like two years of me trying to do this. Like I can barely like keep up. And she's like, just don't quit. Like just don't. And then I think like a few days later, you did pretty well in a time trial and that kind of like turned things around a bit. So his expectations going into tour were low. Like I think it was like, maybe I could win a stage. Right. And like, stay, you know, as the tour progressed, like the expectations may have been raised, but like still very low. Like he did not expect to win the Tour de France on that day, although he thought he 
could. He went into that day in much better form than he thought he would be. And he, he just kind of could tell like Finian's attitude and like a bit of arrogance heading into that stage, like victory was assumed. Um, so yeah, it's definitely an interesting moment and definitely a moment that like always comes up for me. Yeah. I was going to say, I can imagine you that like, like, as you said all the time and this, you said, you know, when you were describing that story about getting thrown over the barriers, like there was an element of normalcy to that, right? Cause you were young. This is sort of like what your life or the things you'd been exposed to right up, up, up to that point. I'm wondering when was there a point where like, you know, maybe when you're a bit older, you're at school or something and you look back and you're like, oh, okay, that wasn't normal. Like the way that I, you know, my kind of life up to this point hasn't been normal. And what, yeah, I guess like, how did you feel about it when you started recognizing that? I think, I think that moment comes when you start going to therapy (laughs) Um, and start like understanding like what, what normal, like there isn't normal, but like what a normal childhood would potentially look like. Like I didn't really go to school until fifth grade. Like I'd start right. school in the U.S. I'd go here for two and a half months and then go to Europe and then um, basically just homeschool. Like my, my school would send me like a duffel bag full of work and I'd have to like somehow get it done by June. So like just like kind of that structure uh, just wasn't there. Like it was really, you know, my dad was like the center of a solar system and then like there was just like these concentric circles around him to like make sure he could do what he had to do. But I would say like, you know, I gained a really interesting perspective on the world. Like I, I grew up speaking multiple languages and growing up in Belgium was fantastic. Like the quality of life there was great. Just my daily life was awesome. And yeah, I, I just feel very international. I don't feel like I'm too American or actually european so it's it's kind of this like outlier i would say as a result of this kind of upbringing but your dad was third in the tour de france at a very young age of 24 then second then he wins and then has the accident that you mentioned i mean the sport of cycling is full of ups and downs peaks and valleys on a on a normal situation then he had a couple hard years coming back in in 88 with PDM. And then, like you, you mentioned in the Giro, he was kind of struggling with it. But seeing that the highest of highs and the lowest of lows at such a young age, did you ever want to follow in the footsteps as a professional cyclist? No. And, and it was basically something my parents would say very often, like, hey, you're never going to be a professional cyclist. <laughs> like, just keep that in mind. Like you should be a doctor. And my dad was like, well, if you're going to be an athlete, like be a pro golfer. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, but no, like no real desire. Like I love riding my bike. I loved riding my bike growing up. And, um, but no, I had, I had different ideas of what I wanted to do. And honestly, like I was exposed to so many interesting people and, and really kind of this world that kind of developed around my dad and his focus on like kind of design and product development and kind of sourcing technology for her for him to like race with i would say this guy boone lennon who was the inventor of the aero bars made a huge impression on me um like he'd come to europe every summer and he'd just be like working out of a truck like designing my dad's aero bars like 
all summer. So I just basically like hung out with him and watched him do all this work. And it just made me want to be an inventor, really. And I remember like being inspired by him and like starting to design like product. I have like a very distinct like image in my head of when I started doing that. And I would say that that's what I draw from a lot from that time was like just the interesting people and the out of the box stuff that was going on that I was exposed to was really has been inspirational and formative for sure. I mean, you mentioned Scott Arrow Bars, then Oakley, the clipless, clipless pedal system. Uh, I think your dad was, you know, one of the first guys that started using the Avocet cycling computer, you know, Giro helmets, Aero helmets, the SRM, like, which is stock standard for everybody now measuring wattage instead of just heart rate or sensations and, and, and carbon frames. I mean, wow, that must've been so much fun being around those sort of people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, quirky inventors basically. And, and that's kind of like now, now those types of people are now, you know, like myths, right? Like they're lauded figures, right? Like being that Silicon Valley entrepreneur inventor is like something that everyone's wanting to be now. Um, but in reality, they're just like dudes with, you know, long hair that think, you know, are hyper-focused on some weird thing that all of a sudden becomes something that's mainstream. And what's interesting is like my dad's involvement in, in making those things mainstream and like the mark he made it, you know, if you look at like when he started his career and like as a pro in 80, and then when he left, like the sport is so, was so different looking, right? It's like from every level from like the business side of it to salaries to contracts to like like as you mentioned like the family the family within professional cycling like there wasn't family i think until my family came in and, and we were present right. but but yeah he's uh he's definitely an influential guy and a really good guy so i think he, he did benefit the sport immensely by being involved you work now in design and, and um, development, like in the tech world, but also beyond that, obviously, with Le Mans Bikes, which we'll, we'll get to in, in a minute. But I'm, I'm just interested hearing you talk about the guys in the back of the van who would come and they would sort of, you know, they, they would make these aero bars out of, you know, like the stuff in their van, right? How is that different to now? Like, like that, that process of, of these guys, like one person turning up with this idea versus now having an idea and, and how you take and how that gets brought to market or that development process happens i'm interested to hear the difference honestly i feel like it's the same everything starts with an idea and then it turns into a conversation and then you have to like ma start making it a bit more real and like draw some form to it and i was actually listening to a vanity fair interview with johnny ive that took place like eight years ago but he was talking about like the core apple design team and it's mm. just comprised of 17 people and they just sit in a room and spitball and whatever kind of starts sticking they like kind of move it into okay like what could this look like and they, and they bring it into foam so once they have this tactile object like representative of the, of the concept that's when things like actually start moving forward and a team kind of jumps onto it and and they start bringing that product into development and i would say like everything just starts with like a sketch or a napkin or a garage and and Boone's, uh, you know, Boone's way of building stuff is, is you know, it's, it's, it's like the Steve Jobs story, right? It's just like solving a problem, seeing an opportunity, and, and it worked. And same thing for kind of Oakley, Giro. I, I, 
if I recall correctly, like Jim Gentis was dating my aunt, Karen, and, and he, he, I think he, he met my dad and then he came up with an idea of like improving the bicycling helmet. Right. And at, he came back to my dad with a prototype and I guess it was like hard plastic, a few pounds, like three pounds. And my dad was like, it's, it's not viable. I would never wear that. And I guess that morning my dad had bought me like a baby bell helmet, which was, you know, made out of styrofoam and he grabbed it and he's like, it needs to be like this, right? It needs to have air vents. So they just started like carving it out. And I think that was basically the, the, that was Jiro, right? That's where it started. And Jim like went back to Northern California and started iterating on it. And I think he came back to Reno and showed him a prototype. And that's really how Jiro was born. That's wild. And then, so being around that, like how have you kind of carved your own path, right? Like um, tell us a little bit of how, I guess, you know, you became that that designer, that that sort of taking that inventive spirit and, and, and how has that kind of got you to now, I guess? I think I'm like, I was born an entrepreneur, I would say. Um, I think, you know, growing up and being pretty much an autodidact where like I was essentially teaching myself until fifth grade, like gave me the skills to like start figuring stuff out on my own and wanting to just like make things and invent stuff and do and do something completely new. I was really big into skateboarding growing up and I started building ramps and, and welding like rails and stuff and building like skate parks and wanted to start like a company around it. So I, I started something with my best friend, Zach. And like further down the road, we became co-founders in several software companies and just, you know, having my partners that have incredible skills that I don't have, but working together has just led to a bunch of interesting opportunity for me. But yeah, I, I kind of just follow my interests. You know, I, I, w- I went to audio engineering school because I was really into music and playing music. And there, I, that's when iTunes launched when I was there. So like the music industry literally changed while I was in music school. And I was getting like, you know, certified in some recording software. And that introduced me to like the opportunity of software and its, its impact on, on industry. And that seemed more interesting to me than like producing records. So I started thinking more along the lines of like where the internet could be going and just started kind of working on some internet concepts. And that brought me out to the Bay Area. And I worked in China for a minute. But but yeah, that's kind of been my focus for the last 10, 12 years. And after my first startup didn't go as planned, I moved back to Minneapolis for a little bit uh, in late 2012 to explore like the opportunity of the bike company where like, you know, there was a little, there was a sea change in, in the cycling world with the Armstrong era kind of coming to an end. And my dad maybe being willing to kind of venture back into cycling and, and the industry. And we started looking at how we could make it interesting and kind of solve all the problems that he'd been dealing with, with, you know, his bike company over the years. So that's been a, a long road to getting to where we are today, but it's been super, super interesting and very kind of, I want to say it's like jazz because like everything just kind of, is moving and we come across new opportunities and everything seems to be heading in the right direction and and according to our vision. But yeah, I just, I'm a passionate guy 
when it comes to design and aesthetics and you know solving problems and and really that's who my dad is too so i've been working with him on this bike company and and the products and the brand and he's a he's a he's a very detail oriented guy with severe add so it's an <laughs> interesting uh dichotomy but um yeah so when we when we bring this company back like our bikes are designed by him right like he is in this this isn't like a a licensing thing this is his passion this is kind of this is his company which is really exciting because there's a, a really authentic story here um and it's really just the same thread that it's that it's been since the early 80s right it's just kind of the same thing um the same dna being applied to some new problems and you mentioned a little bit earlier that you guys are soon to be launching some new some new bike stuff because you know, I, I had to look you up a little bit on on the interweb and your chief strategy officer at Le Mans Carbon and Le Mans Bikes. So is is there something in the works coming up soon? Big time. Big time. I I won't disclose the products just yet, but mm-hmm. the product line that we're gonna be releasing over the next year will be very interesting. This is, you know, we are a technology-led company. We've spent the last five years really focused on commercializing a technology, two technologies, one that was developed at the Department of Energy's Oak Ridge National Lab, and another that was developed at Deakin University down in Melbourne and Geelong. And this is, this is a material science play. So we've got a technology that can produce like raw carbon fiber uh, four times faster than the current state-of-the-art and for about half the price. So we've been dealing with like real big industry players the last four years, like everyone in aerospace and automotive and, and energy. And fr- by kind of jumping into that industry, we've really gained access to the bleeding edge in composite manufacturing. And we're like right at the, you know, at the starting point where composites are now going to be like an industrial material, right? Like readily available, new manufa- high-speed manufacturing processes that'll make normal things uh, made out of carbon fiber and composites. So taking a lot of these technologies we've found with, within these labs or startups and applying them to the bike. And then, so that's on the bike side, but on the carbon side, it's really like a B2B industrial company servicing you know, major industry players. So it's a, it's a really cool uh, business. Like having worked in the internet, which is like the tech industry, whereas really that's like websites on the internet uh, for the most part. But this is like hard science, um, which I've, which is, I don't know, extremely interesting to me because I don't have like a hard science background, but somehow I got this opportunity to work on a company like this, which is really, really cool. And so why come back to bikes? Like, you know, why relaunch this brand, um, to use your words, and, and get back into this world? What, what brought you here? I think there are a few, there are a few reasons. One is like bikes are my dad's passion, right? Like he didn't become a cyclist out of like pure opportunity. Like he loves cycling. He loves bikes. He's super passionate about that and designing them and building them and making things. And he just wants to do it. And it's, it's a, it's a great kind of 
test bed for the carbon business where you know we're actually making a product so we can start solving our own problems and those problems that we solve we can bring back to our customers and start helping them solve their problems through our manufacturing processes and and our learning so and it, the way i view it is like the bike is like the application right like all of this stuff comes together in this product that that we're making um, and it and it's got a great story and it, you know bikes can change the world especially now and and that's something really interesting because your you and your and your father your family have been at the beginning of what has sort of been this episode of cycling right the introduction of all of this technology that we're sort of seeing now and then you were away from the sport i'm wondering how you view bikes the sport of cycling now as you're coming back into it like what what do you want to see and, and how do you want to fit in and change things or what do you want to bring to the table i guess it's a complex question there's so many layers to the the answer hmm. i want to provide but <laughs> um well it's interesting because i've got the we have the vantage point of like kind of been there you know we've like done professional cycling it was kind of my life and it was my family's life and my dad like really kind of did everything during his career. So f figuring out a way to like come back and make it really interesting. That's been like what I've been kind of rec reconciling is like, I like doing my own things. So I'm not really interested in like just kind of joining the family business. Like how can we make this relevant and interesting, you know, for everyone involved. And I think one, one development that's, you know, you know, rolling out is, uh, you know, is e-bikes and this whole mobility mega trend and just like the way uh, cycling is kind of fragmenting, um, but also broadening and kind of the way I, I've been defining it in, in certain, around certain people is just like the, that cycling is bifurcating and it's, it, it's dividing between sport and like lifestyle mobility. And those two categories open up a ton of opportunity in that I think historically the cycling industry has been very oriented around like sport and recreation, right? It's a fitness industry. And then now you've got the onset of, you know, of electric motors and, and kind of the mobility kind of trend toward, you know, environmentalism and kind of getting out of your car and onto a bike. And, and, you know, there's a new market with another billion people that we can, Kind of bring into cycling and, and and i think it could really change so many things so that's what's really interesting to me is now like wrapping that insight up around like within a brand right creating a brand that's relevant to not only like people that are aware of my father and his career and stuff he had accomplished but also making a brand like that's you know recognizable and relevant to someone that has no idea who he is and no, no kind of relationship to cycling prior to, let's say, today. So that's like the problem that we're trying to solve internally. And I think, uh, I think we've got something pretty special in the works. Do you, do you ride nowadays and do you pay attention to the Tour de France? And if you do, um, what are your predictions for this last uh, week and a half of the Tour de France? Well, I do ride my bike. I, I raced for a few years in college. I really never had like a road bike until I was like 20, really. And then I got super into it. I did like tap the tour like a few months after I started riding. And then I just like got hooked for a few years. And it was a great way to just like 
see the world, spend some time with my dad and my family, and just kind of like shift my lifestyle outside of being like a college student into like more of an athlete. And I think that kind of organized my life in a really great way. But today I really just ride my bike with my daughter in a burly trailer and we go get ice cream and and sometimes I'll go for like an hour or two ride just to kind of clear my mind. But I'm not, I'm not even in cycling shoes anymore. I've just been secretly like working, honestly. And I haven't really been watching the tour. Like I've been recording it and I think I've only watched it for five minutes so far. So I'm, I'm out of the loop, but last year's <laughs> tour was awesome. And that got me kind of back into it. I think my relationship with professional cycling in the tour has been as the whole, you know, professional cycling world has been, which is kind of off and on and, you know, up and down, especially kind of given my personal experience through, through everything over the past, you know, 35 years that I've been alive. But yeah, I think it's exciting to have a new generation in the sport. And I know that, you know, my dad was doing commentary for Eurosport for a few years uh, more recently, and he's really excited about where things are now. And you've got young blood and really talented guys out there. And, and like the drama is there. I think there was a lot of like, Pro cycling kind of went supernova, like super mainstream in the early 2000s. Like there was a lack of drama and that made me lose some interest. But now with like, you know, last year's tour, it was, it was like the golden, the golden days. Yeah, exactly. I think you're right. I think we're, we're witnessing with this new generation of, of riders a bit of, yeah, a bit of a change in, 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 in the sport, whether it's, you know, the, the race format seemed to be shifting a little bit. The tour obviously has been um, applying some 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 of those changes, like shorter stages, different mountain stage setups, things like that. And it is; it seems to be breathing a bit of life. That formula that existed for nearly you know nearly twenty years, right? Um, first with with obviously Postal and, and that system, and then Team Sky. I think they seem to have broken that a little bit in the last couple of years, and and it is exciting to see. I think. There is going to be hopefully uh, a whole whole bunch of new fans to the sport, but also to just a new perspective on on the bike. Given, I think, too, the whole you know the way the world's shifting in, as you said before, right? Mobility. Um, we're seeing a different a different group of people interested in this sport and are interested in different things about the sport. Um, I'm noticing it seems to be people of our age and, and younger like different things about the sport than you know, the guys in their 50s and 60s who have followed it for 30 years, um, which is cool, which is great to see. I think it's 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 modernizing. Definitely. I, I Yeah, I think we were talking just previously about, you know, the onset of more like soul riders and bikepacking and these like niche communities popping up and then like, you know, businesses popping up around them. It, it's just interesting to watch and just see how, you know, the, that this world is maturing. Like if you look back in the 80s, like you've got a handful of U.S. bike companies, all very like, you know, recreation and then some cool companies like Specialized and Gary Fisher and like these startups coming up. And, and now you look at them and they're like, like Specialized is massive. So it, it's just interesting to see like where things will go. Uh, I think like the the rate of growth and innovation that's coming for cycling and those that kind of can forecast like what's what's to come and what 
identifying what people are looking for. Uh, I think there are going to be some really interesting big companies that, that, that come from this kind of shift. So that's kind of where yeah. my mind is. I'm like, all, I'm like, in, I'm in work mode. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Like, um, my little brother Lachlan last night at about in, in US time, uh, about 10 p.m., but I think in Spanish time, it was about 3 a.m., 4 a.m. He finished, uh, he won an ultra race, a 700K. Um, I think it took him 43 hours, didn't sleep, right? And, and, and this is a race, his average speed was 18 kilometers an hour or something like that. And, uh, and then next week, uh, next, next month, he's off to the, to the Giro, right? And, th- and that's what's exciting is that an athlete can go and do, you know, the, the, like cycling, the broad spectrum of cycling is sort of slowly being bridged, right? This idea of, of adventure, of bikepacking, of kind of expedition style events meet the high performance, very specialized, hyper, you know, focused world of, of, um, you know, the Giro, like of, of world tour cycling. And that's exciting because I think the bike is broad and for, and for a number of years, it's sort of those two sports, those two, um, worlds are seen as completely different. Um, and, and in the end it's, it's two wheels, a crank set and chain, right? Um, and a pair of handlebars. So yeah, I think it's, uh, it, it's cool that, that, that the pro cycling world is opening itself up to that. And then there is this under this sort of grassroots movement, um, on other sides of the sport and they're kind of being able to, to coexist or be able to link in some way. I think that's can only be positive. And the grassroots is important. It just makes a much more robust uh, right. industry and kind of culture. Right. Mm. So like the, the, the culture and industry of cycling isn't, you know, subject to a doping scandal and that like jeopardizes the industry and the sport like that. It's right. just becoming, uh, stronger, right. Which I think yeah. is great. It's only a good thing. Yeah, exactly. When, when a sport exists, because, you know, like on that back, that bikepacking side, like there's no heroes to emulate in that world. Right. People, you know, like people who have jobs and, and lives, they're doing that because that's what they want. They're not, you know, trying to emulate a champion or emulate someone else. They're, they're doing it for their own reasons. And I think that's also a really exciting, you know, the fact that people who are at the top of the sport in one realm are coming across to emulate people who, you know, dentists and doctors and, you know, like car mechanics and that sort of stuff that are, that are doing this for fun, I think is, is really, really cool. Definitely. It's like surfing, right? You've got like the World Surf League, which is like the the elite and then you've got longboarders and soul surfers and like it's a much more diverse thing and you've got you know people with extreme passion that this it becomes their lives and i think that's what's happening with cycling um it's not just like the fringe that are experiencing that but now it's just a, a much larger population that's making the, the that's putting the bike at the center of their life it's it's really interesting well, I'm I'm much older than than both of you, and I learned the sport from the old kind of hard man's perspective of you know your dad and you know just just the the difficulty of being alone in Europe, and now you know kids have it a little bit easier. I I think I mean it's it's definitely more training specific, but the the one thing that I really enjoy is that my my horizons have been broadened and you know 
back in the day, if you were a track racer, you were a track racer. If you're a road guy, you were a road guy. If you're a mountain bike, you're a mountain biker. And now you have all these different genres uh, just kind of mixing in a pot. And really, it is just you're a cyclist or you ride bikes. It's not that you're one categorized into one hole or another. And that that to me is the beautiful thing, especially coming out of you know this whole crisis, is that there's just more people on bikes. There's more kids on bikes. There's more people exploring. Um, every one of us use the bike for a different in a different way. Some people may be just using it as a means to an end. Some people may be using it just to to test product. But now there's just people using it as their happy place, as their church. And you know, I, I like the way that that things are go the way that things are going. And I just hope that um, it, it continues down that road. Yeah, I think the genie's out of the bottle, so I don't think you have to worry about um, there being a dark age of cycling or riding a bike. And I think, like to your point, like the definition of a cyclist has been evolving, right? Like my during my dad's time and your time, it's like you were a road cyclist, right? Mm. And and now it's it's kind of evolving to like you're a cyclist or you ride a bike. And I think where it's going to go is like the majority won't even have that sort of definition where they'll just ride a bike because that's what they do and how they go places. Like you're not a driver because you drive a car, right? So, <laughs> exactly. Um, that's, I think that's where things are going and it's, 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 it's just fun. Absolutely. Mate, thank you so much for uh, your time this morning. Uh, it's been it's been fantastic to chat and and really interesting actually to to get a different side of the coin. Um, appreciate it. Thank you. Wow, uh, pretty pretty amazing stuff there. I can only imagine what it was like growing up with your father being a rock star. You know, Bernard Hinault, all these guys just kind of like around the house and and whatnot. Must have been pretty difficult. To, to deal with the ups and downs of his career being planted over in Europe. You know, his family definitely started the families being around the Tour de France. I looked up to Greg a lot. Obviously, as soon as those Scott bars came out, I had that. The Giro helmet, I had that. The Oakley sunglasses, I had that. I remember he came to the Coors Classic after he won the Tour de France in 1987. And I was, you know being a little fanboy, taking pictures, and I still have those pictures uh, to, to this day. Remember, this was before they had buses and, and press tents. They, they would just be out changing in the middle of a park, like up in Aspen, where, where I saw them do the circuit race. And there was just so many, so much drama with, with Greg. He was, he was either flying or, or dying. He was never really like steady Eddie, you know, Indurine. Five five tours. Greg wins one tour, then almost dies in a shooting accident, struggles for a year or two, and then comes out of nowhere and wins eighty nine in dramatic fashion, and then again in in ninety. It must have just been a whirlwind for Gregory and and his brother Scott to to be in that world. And I'm just so I was so impressed with how well-spoken he was and and so humble and so articulate with with what he's doing and how he kind of carved out his own little niche in in probably a very difficult hard to live up to sort of situation yeah and one thing i really found interesting from from that conversation was how cycling then was very much 
characters, individuals, right? These these big personalities, um, and and also too, there was an element of like of DIY, right? Talking about the development of the Scott bars and how you know they just sort of did that in the back of a of a van or the original helmet, and how it was, you know, um, Greg was kind of like, oh, use this. Um, children's helmet as a reference it needs holes it needs to be this that the other and and they kind of just got got down to doing it right there and then whereas i feel like nowadays there's a team you know you see them doing aerodynamic testing or you see them doing um, any of that sort of product development and 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 it's like you get them in a wind tunnel or you get them on the on the velodrome and there's a whole bunch of sensors and there's all this kind of you know obviously technology improves but it's kind of cool to think that that's where all of this started, right? Was 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 just people at the back of the car, you know, cutting chunks out of a of a of a molded piece of plastic, or you know, cutting the ends off of of uh, of some some pieces of aluminium to make make a set of handlebars, right? So I found that really interesting. Was that was that it was very much just these characters that drove the sport, and knowing that, you know, you sort of you sort of wish a little bit that there was there was still that kind of freedom and that kind of. Um, maverick type of mentality or at least you know allowed to shine through nowadays where i feel like it's all pretty tightly contained and a lot of that stuff is is very very monitored and precise and and there's is sort of a drawn out process and and also what what i found quite quite interesting was that he he mentioned the character of his dad all uh, kind of wrapped up in the ADHD personality that he had, <laughs> ha, ha, has had his whole life. So, man, oh man, that's got to be a strong family unit because if you have somebody, you know, that creative with a little ADHD, I'm sure it's just jumping from from one stone to the next. And uh, it sounds like with the the help of Jeffrey and his other brother Scott, they've got that that company going in the right direction. Yeah, it'll be exciting to see what they can do. You know innovative family obviously and uh cycling is ripe for that right now so it'll be cool to see when they launch i think it's in 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 the next week to see what they launch with and and to see the kind of that that brand and that story unfold over the next few years that's that's it i mean cycling is all about the stories and um you know it's it's not that robotic um sense of the word anymore you know it's it's Mm. It's it's real guys with real emotions and 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 real values that that are making the sport so interesting on on so many different fronts. But um, yeah, everyone, that's it for this week. Uh, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you again to Jeffrey Lamont for for joining us. You can find all our past podcasts as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program, and please spread the word by telling your friends about us. You can get at us on social media at thatisgus and at bobby.julik on Instagram. Uh, make sure you reach out to us there. We got a lot of uh, really positive feedback from the last episode. A lot of um, a lot of great conversation around that. So appreciate that and uh, and and keep that keep that stuff coming. We love it. We love the conversation and um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, until next week, thank you very much for listening. Thanks everyone. I'm Bobby Julik, reminding you to stay safe, stay sane, stay calm, and don't forget to put your socks on. Yeah, I'm working to dawn Cause I know that I'm the one I'm a king like
Velo News has been the American voice of competitive cycling since 1972, and they just launched an all-new premium membership program called Velo News Pass. Members of Velo News Pass get access to premium content on Velo News, discounts from partners like Scratch Labs and Giordana, plus your choice of any of the magazines produced by their parent company, Pocket Outdoor Media, which include Velo News, Triathlete, Ski, Backpacker. Climbing, Yoga Journal, and more. Loyal listeners of Fizzo get fifteen percent off Velo News Pass with the code Fizzo fifteen. Has to be lowercase. That is P Y S O fifteen, all lowercase. Become a member at VeloNews.com/activepass and enter the code Fizzo fifteen, all lowercase, during checkout. That's VeloNews.com/activepass. And coupon code Fizzo fifteen to join.